All right. Anything but Catholic. Episode three. <laughs> David Cook, how are you, my friend? Awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, you know what? Let's let's get into it because today we actually do have a bunch of questions, and I know that you wanted to start off with a timely and important subject, which is Catholic principles for voting. I think this is a really important topic for a few different reasons. I mean, obviously, number one, just the timing. If this does get published on Monday, it'll be the day before the election. But also just in general, I've seen a lot of stuff where people people just seem very confused about what the faith says about voting. Some people think that the faith has a really clear answer on how to vote. Some people think the faith doesn't really have an answer of how to vote. Even when people think the faith does have an answer on how to vote, they don't really agree on what it is. And I think it's an important subject for us to be really covering, because I'll be honest, there are a lot of bad takes on this. I mean, you had Father James Martin, who is obviously very infamous, but basically getting up there and just kind of being like, well, a, a Catholic can vote for either Biden or Trump, and it's not a sin. And he just really like simplified the issue in a way that I don't think is really justifiable or defensible but I, I thought this was something that was important for us to at least cover so that our listeners could you know be informed about it i absolutely agree i think it would be great to have a real kind of clear-cut explanation of all the stuff and the different nuances of it and the places where we really can't deviate because as you said there's a lot of ambiguous nonsense out there that's essentially pushing for a side that we can't take all right where would you like to begin with that well, I, I wrote out a bunch of stuff, um, and, you know, I'll start off by mentioning it. It's kind of a well-known thing, but there are five political issues that really the church gives no wiggle room at all. Um, and that is abortion, gay marriage, embryonic stem cell research, human cloning, and euthanasia. And the reason why there's no wiggle room on these things is because these things are objective evils. Now, I was looking through, and I don't condone this to be clear, and we'll talk about why I don't condone it as we get into it, but I was just looking through the USCCB voter guide, and it, it the way it like puts the way it puts out certain things is kind of interesting. Because, like, for instance, it mentions like that Biden it it claims falsely that Joe Biden um aligns with the church on the issue of affordable health care and Donald Trump does not. And the thing is that's false because it's an economic question, it's a prudential question. Catholics can disagree on what the best method is for healthcare to be provided to all citizens, whether it's better to use a market model or whether it's better to use a government model. That's not something that the church clearly teaches on. That's not an issue of intrinsic evil. But something like abortion, that's the murder of unborn children. That's just inherently evil. And it's such like forbidding murder is one of the most basic things that government can do. Genesis chapter nine, verse six. God says that anyone who sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed. I don't think the present Pope likes that very much, but, you know, that's what the Bible says. Gosh, I sound like a Protestant now, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. But the thing is, like, you know, forbidding murder is one of the most basic things a government can do, whereas something like healthcare is very prudential in terms of, like, you know, how you do that. Right. Well, as Father Altman put it, uh, there are issues which two Catholics of good faith can debate and end up on opposite sides of, and both can still receive the most precious body and blood of Jesus Christ. But these non-negotiables are issues where you cannot be on one side of them and still partake of the Eucharist. I believe he was a cardinal when he said this, but um, Pope Benedict XVI, um, I think he was Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, but he said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing it, but this was at a time when John Paul II was, for the most part, opposed to capital punishment. It wasn't quite as bad as it is with Pope Francis now, but it was kind of leaning in the same direction. But even then, um, Cardinal Ratzinger said that if a Catholic were to disagree 
with the Holy Father on the issue of the just waging of war or of capital punishment, he would not, for that reason, be unfit to present himself for Holy Communion. And he explicitly contrasted that with the issues of abortion and euthanasia, where if a Catholic disagreed with the Holy Father on those issues, he would, for that reason, be unfit to present himself for Holy Communion. And that's the issue here. You know, when it comes to capital punishment, again, it's a prudential question of when it is best to exercise capital punishment. But the Catechism of Trent, Pope Pius XII, um, St. Augustine, St. Aquinas, all say that capital punishment is intrinsically licit. Like, it is not an intrinsically immoral thing. Again, I know the current Pope disagrees with that, but he's out of line not only with Scripture but with tradition, like we've talked about before. But, um, you know, so Catholics can disagree on those things. Um, they can disagree on whether a particular war is just or not. They can disagree. Now, certainly there are Catholic principles that apply to these things. Don't get me wrong. But they're, it's not the same as an intrinsic evil. Like, you can never – like, there are times when you can go to war. You can never commit abortion or euthanasia. What are some of the other references you have for this? So we can point people to um, statements from prelates or from church documents, which would back up what you're saying about these things not being negotiable. Right. So um, first of all, like I said, um, I believe Cardinal Ratzinger was speaking for Pope John Paul II at the time. Um but also, um, and, I, and I also have an article from Jimmy Aiken back from 2004, and I, I don't know whether or not he would moderate his position to come more into conformity with the current church or not. But regardless, what he said in 2004 was very true. Basically, what he said is that it would, I mean, number one, a Catholic can never support abortion or euthanasia. But number two, if you were even going to vote, for a candidate that supported something that was intrinsically evil, you would have to have gravely proportionate reason. And he basically raises the question of like, you can't, like, let's say for the sake of argument, and I don't think either of us would agree with this, but let's say for the sake of argument that Donald Trump was completely irresponsible on COVID, it costed a couple hundred thousand lives, like the Democrats are making it sound. Even if we believed that Joe Biden had a better policy on healthcare, even if we believed that Joe Biden had a better policy on economics and on immigration, and again, I don't agree with any of those things. But let's say for the sake of argument that you did, if you were a more liberal leaning, like fiscally and like on healthcare Catholic, and you kind of believe those things, the death toll would be not even close to what it would be from abortion every single year. So there's no gravely proportionate reason to vote for Joe Biden, period. Yeah, perfect. The, that's, that, that makes it very clear. I also looked at, um, and again, I, I'm quoting the more for lack of a better term, like conservative side of the church, not even necessarily like the really traditional side of the church. But I have a quote from Pope Pius XII um, about voting. Um, and he says, quote, in the present circumstances, it is a strict obligation for all those who have the right to vote, men and women, to take part in the elections. Whoever abstains from doing so, in particular by indolence or weakness, commits a sin grave in itself, a mortal fault. Each one must follow the dictates of his own conscience. However, it is obvious the voice of conscience imposes on every Catholic to give his vote to the candidates who offer truly sufficient guarantee to, for the protection of the rights of God and of souls, for the true good of individuals, family, and of society, according to love of God and Catholic mortal teaching. Now, I will note Pope Pius XII wrote this, and I believe it was like 1946 or something. So I live in a much more world in 2020 than we did in 1946. So the there is a um, SSPX article on the sspx.org website that kind of gives some commentary on this. 
And basically, it says basically similar things to what Jimmy Aiken said. Um, basically, they argue that because there aren't, I don't know if you, I mean, you could argue whether or not this is true, but what the SSPX website argues is that it's not necessarily obligatory for every Catholic to vote in the 2020 election because there's mo there's not really a truly Catholic option. But you certainly couldn't justify voting for the... Um, like, basically, it says kind of the same thing that Jimmy Aiken says, which is that if you were going to vote for a candidate that supported evil, you would have to have gravely proportionate reason to do so. Yeah. It would seem to me that there's never been a clearly Catholic option in American history. I mean, the closest you would get would be on a very surface level would be John F. Kennedy. And certainly we know that that was not a true Catholic option. I found this kind of odd as well, but I think we can apply the principles, which is basically to say if you have a truly Catholic option that in the true sense, like not just name in name only, but like truly supports the authentic form of Catholic social teaching of like, say, you know, Leo the 13th and St. Pius the 10th, I think we would be obliged to vote for that. Um, I think we are also obliged to care about the state of our republic like you know this is not as much as america is not a full has never been a fully catholic country it is a um you know it, it is it is our inheritance so to speak so we have to take the best care of it that we can so basically i think what pope Pius XII is saying is if you're just not if you're just lazy and you don't go out and vote that's a, a moral failing on your part now, if you look at the options and you say, like, you know, in good conscience, I can't support any of these people because they all support evils. I, I think Pope Pius XII would say that that's your right. And I think a traditional priest would say that that's your right. Nonetheless, it does seem, based on the principles that we've enumerated here, of, like, grave proportionate reason. Because what Jimmy Aiken points out in his article is that you're not voting for a policy. You're voting for a candidate. And you're voting for a candidate amidst the other candidates so what you're basically saying is uh, given the options i have i want this guy this time right and that's basically so I, let's say let's look at donald trump right like you know donald trump is obviously has a lot of personal moral character problems he may have gotten better on some of them but certainly he's had like moral character problems he's, a, he's in a marriage that's not really legitimate and when it comes to abortion, he allows for a rape and incest exception and a life of the mother exception, which is obviously not Catholic. We don't believe that there can be any exceptions. And I think the church has been pretty clear about that. But at the same time, I'm not voting for every policy of Donald Trump if I vote for Donald Trump. I'm voting for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. That seems a clear choice. And, you know, to be frank about it, it appears to me that every seriously traditionally minded, prominent Catholic speaker priest is saying that there is no there is no option you have to vote i'm not using the word have to in a, in a legalistic sense but you're, you're you're almost compelled to vote for trump because of all the reasons you stated because he's to put it in a way that i hate to put it at worst he's the lesser of two evils even though i don't think he is evil um and certainly it's not like you know in the history of christendom that god has ever used people with morally flawed flawed characters to advance his will um so i don't see a problem there and it seems to me also on the other side that the usccb as is their want is using you know circumlocution to express the idea that biden is a morally acceptable choice and clearly he isn't i mean that's just the bottom line so i want to distinguish between two things 
the first question is, do you have to vote for Trump? And the second question is, can you vote for Biden? I think with the first question, I agree with you that we should vote for Trump, but I wouldn't say that it's binding on pain of sin. Like if you're looking at it like and you're just like, you know what, I just can't swallow the compromises that he makes or the moral uh, failings that he has or I think his policies are grossly imprudent or whatever. And you were to say like, okay, I'm going to vote for the Constitution Party or the ASP. Now, I hate the ASP personally. But I don't think they hold to any positions that are intrinsically evil. I think they just hold to some positions I would consider to be foolish. Um, but if you were to vote for one of those options, I, I wouldn't accuse you of sin. I would I would accuse you of imprudence, but I wouldn't accuse you of sin. On the other hand, if you were to cast a vote for Joe Biden, and what reason could you possibly give? Like, I would be like, you know, I think he's better on the economy or healthcare or something like that. So I'm going to vote for a candidate that wants... It's to be legal to murder nine million babies a year. Like, I think that's a sin, objectively speaking. Again, I can't speak to people's hearts, but objectively speaking, I think that's a sin that's out of line with what the church teaches. And I don't think I could justify that. I think that maybe if, if, if I was of a more sophisticated mindset, there might be an argument that could be made there, not voting for Trump, being um, a sort of cooperation with evil through um, omission. But as I said, I'm I'm not. That's not something I'm really prepared to undertake right now. But I I agree generally with what you say. It's it's on the other side. It's absolutely um, unacceptable to vote for Biden. If we were talking about somebody else, in the same way that you created a parallel last week, where you talked about you know Pope Francis and the homosexuality, if he had used the same language for pedophilia, it would be a different beast. Mm -hmm. I feel like if we were talking about, and I, I hate to go back and rely on this, but if we were talking about Hitler and there was like an alternative to Hitler and people said, well, I'm not going to vote for the alternative to Hitler because he smells funny, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, and Hitler smells better, then uh, <laughs> I think it would be a lot easier for people. People would be a lot quicker to say, well, you obviously enabled the rise of Hitler. Whereas now, you know, because things have been so muddied morally in mm -hmm. our culture, we're not so quick to say that about voting for Trump or not voting for Trump having the same kind of consequences. But frankly, as you said, the I death toll is much, much, much higher. I think that, and I'm very objective about these things. So first of all, hypothetically, if you had an election between Hitler and Stalin, then you could start to have an argument of like, maybe Hitler isn't as bad. Um, but, um, and then you could decide you'd have to figure out whether based on double effect, you could vote for the lesser genocidal dictator or not. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm not going to get into that too much because it's kind of a weird hypothetical. But as far as it goes, like, I'm going to be pretty objective about this still. And I would say, like, OK, if you have an election between, like, say, I, I don't know, um, say Hitler and... I don't know, like, say, Mussolini. Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I get it, but, I mean, if you were to say, you know what, I don't think I can really get behind either of those. I'm going to write in Ron Paul. I, I don't think he'd be guilty of a sin. I think it would just maybe be imprudent. I mean, you could. it would be a prudence question. Like, what sin could you really accuse them of? Right. Well, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, there might be some kind of overly nuanced Sin of, <laughs> sin of omission kind of uh, argument you can make. Not yours. <laughs> right. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm not making the argument. But David, I just want, I just want to be clear. So we, we want to subtitle this episode, Hitler wasn't as bad, right? <laughs> if you insist. Yeah, okay. Quote David Cook. <laughs> no, quote Christopher Lawrence. <laughs> no, no. Let the audio clearly show, sir. 
But to really briefly summarize this, I mean, we have some speculation, but I think what we would both really charge people with, um, because I know, because we have, we have, we kind of speculated about some things, but I think what we would really say is between a candidate that is mostly anti-abortion, which to be clear is mass slaughter of children, and a candidate who is for it, you at the very least can't vote for the candidate who's for it. You and, can't and, do it. Period. And that I, is the clear. Pretty, but like, you know, God will judge you if you do, honestly. And if, exactly already, and if you already did with one of these early voting ballots or something, go to confession. Like, just go to confession. I don't think the priest is going to shout at you. Um, even if you, like Father Nick said this one time, you know, if you commit, if you, if even I wouldn't shout at you, your priest probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> I love Father Nick. Like, He's great. You know? Right. As much as I might wish sometimes that the priest would shout at us, he probably won't. <laughs> even in the SSPX, I've never seen it. Right. I'm not saying it ever happens, but I haven't seen you know, it. I think I told you this story. This is just a little aside. I did I did have when I went to I did a general confession after being away from the faith for a while. I did have the priest tell me that he wanted me to go out and weed all his gardens. And, <laughs> and I was prepared to do it. I was like, okay, you know, this was pretty bad what I confessed. But then he took it back and he said he was only joking anyway. And I was I was actually a little disappointed. He just gave me like a few Hail Marys. Mm. Should we in this instance move on to our listener questions? I think so. I think we've covered the election pretty well, I think. I think so. I think you did a good job. Okay, so first of all, we have a question from Nicholas. And again, I'm just going to read the questions as stated from our listener. So Nicholas says, I'm wondering what were some of the main verses you used to look to when proving imputation of Christ's righteousness from Scripture? Many Protestants consider 2 Corinthians 5.21 one of the top texts to prove imputation. But when I researched the issue, it turns out most church fathers, including Augustine, cross-reference into Romans 8.3, explaining the son being, quote, made sin, close quote, refers to the son's incarnation, quote, in the likeness of sinful flesh, close quote. Even major reformed translations like the ESV and NASB cross-reference 5.21a to Romans 8.3a. I think more Catholics should discuss this issue. So, David, maybe first, would you like to tell the people at home what imputation of Christ's righteousness even is? So, Protest a lot of Protestants, especially like Reformed or Calvinistic Protestants, have this idea that the way you're forgiven from sins is basically like Martin Luther used the analogy of the snow-covered dunghill. So, basically, it's like this. You're a dirty, rotten sinner before you're saved. You're a dirty, rotten sinner after you're saved. But basically, God just declares you righteous as if you were Jesus, even though you're not. So, my analogy, it's kind of like this. In a Protestant scenario, you have like a, this is going to be kind of crude, but you have like a urine-covered robe. And in the Protestant conception, God just throws a white robe on top of your urine-covered robe. Whereas in a Catholic conception, it's more like God actually cleans your robe and you cooperate with God to get that robe like onto like actually cleaned so that it shines white. Does, does that kind of make sense what they're getting at? So basically what they're saying is God just credits you with all the righteousness of Christ. So when he looks at you, it's like you committed all of the zero sins that Christ committed and that you did all of the righteous actions that Christ did, even though really you didn't. So as far as the question itself goes, then... Um, number one, I never noticed the parallel between 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 8.3 until now when he brought it up. Um, just a few hours ago, I was looking through my Bible, like looking at this, and I 
yeah, there is definitely a parallel there, and I never do you, David, do you have those verses ready? Would you like me to pull them up and read them? Yeah, let me just uh, turn to Romans 8, 3 in my hard copy of the Bible. Um, I, I'm using a Didache Bible. I'm not actually sure. It is a Catholic translation, but I'm not sure if it's more modern, so I'm obviously a modernist. And, <laughs> um, you know, uh, by the way, that was a joke, just to be clear. <laughs> Um, Got a lot of compromising audio on you today, Cook. <laughs> Yay, modernism. <laughs> well, I've got Romans 8.3 from the Dewey. If you'd like All right, to go ahead. That. So Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and of sin, hath condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, the second verse from the Dewey again is, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Him who knew no sin, he hath made sin for us, that we might be made the justice of God in him. Yeah, it seems there is a sort of a parallel there. Yes. So I think, first of all, I'll explain to you what the Protestants think this passage means, or at least a lot of Protestants, the kinds of Protestants that Nick is asking about. And then second of all, I will explain why Nick is actually right. So again, with that imputation process, the way they see it, is when Christ was on the cross, he was just treated like he was guilty of all of our sins, even though he wasn't. That the Father, that God the Father poured out wrath on Jesus for all the sins that, depending on which Protestant, it might be the elect or it might be everyone. But, I mean, again, the Calvinists are more consistent. But either way, they basically believe Christ is on the cross. All the sins of at least the people that were going to be saved are poured out on the Son. So he's, like, treated, like, by God the Father, like he's guilty of everyone's sins even though he wasn't and because of that we get treated like we weren't guilty of any sins even though we're still dirty filthy wretches so and that is completely contrary to the way the scriptures teach it's completely contrary to the way the church fathers think and it's completely contrary to the way the medieval theologians thought it really is an idea that comes out of uh william of ockham's nominalist philosophy and i'm not prepared to fully unpack that right now but I know that's kind of where it comes from. And then um, Martin Luther really was, because of his scrupulosity problems that he couldn't deal with, he really started pushing this idea. And somehow it became part of, quote, orthodoxy in a lot of Protestant circles. But what he's saying is the way the church fathers interpreted Jesus being made sin was not him being treated like he was guilty, like the Protestants would have it, but being made into, quote, sinful flesh. So it's not as literal. And I think there is a parallel between Romans 8, 3 here where, like, you know, where it's basically saying like, like sinful flesh as not something that's like personally, it's not something that's like personal moral fault. So basically the second part of the question is, um, well, what other passages did I find convincing for this? Now, the biggest one would have been Isaiah 53, actually, which. I don't know if you'd want me to read it from, like, a Protestant translation so I could kind of show you what I was getting at. Sure, if you have that ready. I can easily pull it up. Yeah, I'm going to read this from the ESV. Isaiah 53, quote, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. Um, I think 53.5 was a big part of it for me. Oh, verse 10. I'm skipping a little bit, but verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see that his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, as far as, and, and at the end, at the very end, it says, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So how did I deal with this? There were a couple of different ways. Number one, when I came to the, when I kind of realized that people just didn't interpret this passage this way, this literally, uh, prior to the Reformation, I kind of just came to the conclusion that, okay, it's not meant to be interpreted as literally. There's a passage in Psalms, I think it might be 22, but I could be wrong, but David says, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes that on the cross. And, and of course, the Protestants interpret this to mean like the father literally forsook the son. But like, that doesn't even make sense because in the Old Testament, the Lord didn't even literally forsake David. It's more of a subjective experience that he's having. Like, you know, David feels like God has forsaken him. Jesus probably felt like the father forsook him, but he knew that he didn't. So in the same way, I, I think that's part of it. Like, you know, sometimes when you look at the the Old Testament parallels, it makes things a little bit more clear that the Catholic Church is in fact right. But also another interesting thing is I believe a lot of the church fathers thought that the Septuagint translations were authoritative rather than the Masoretic ones. And when you read this passage in Isaiah 53 from a Septuagint translation, it doesn't as clearly seem to say what it says in the Masoretic translations. I, I find that interesting. I mean, I'm not an expert on like Bible translation, but it is really interesting. Like just going back to the core issue, how it's like, it's like on the one hand, it's like Sola Scriptura, but on the other hand, it's not even always clear like which translation you're supposed to be using. It's almost like you kind of need a teaching authority to tell you what these things mean. <laughs> yeah, that, what a novel idea that would be. <laughs> I mean, no one ever taught that until Trent, right? <laughs> so yeah, the other thing, the other thing I wanted to say about this really quick before we move on, um, as far as the rest of it, there were also some passages, although I didn't think, I, I kind of just assumed imputation because I kind of assumed the idea that I was taught that, you know, we're all filthy wretches and the only way we could be righteous is if God just like says we are. Because I was brought up with the idea in Protestantism that righteousness means perfect sinlessness, right? Like if you've committed one sin of any kind, you're not righteous anymore. But the Bible really doesn't teach this, right? Like the Bible says Noah was righteous. He says Job was righteous. And these people weren't perfect. Now, Mary was. It says she was full of grace, although even then, like Protestants don't believe that. But, you know, like all of these other figures that were referred to as righteous in the Bible still committed sins. I mean, I don't think Noah never committed a sin, but yet the Bible says he was righteous. And again, it comes down to like, you know, the venial mortal distinction is real. Like not every sin leads to death. And the New Testament says that too. Um, there are sins that lead to death and there are sins that don't. I think it's interesting in there. You brought something to mind in, in your explanation when we were talking about Martin Luther. And it occurs to me that, well, it's occurred to me before, but it's, it's interesting to say that, that both the great founders of schism basically created their movements, and that being Martin Luther and, and, and Henry VIII, because they were, they were each afflicted by satyriasis. And I find, <laughs> that, I find that very funny um, as a motivating factor for, for formulating a so-called reforms of a religion. Do you have any idea if whatever the patriarch that created the Eastern Orthodox Church was had that problem or not? <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to so disparage them. 
don't want to disparage them without knowing. We could look into it. <laughs> um, Topics for future episodes. Right. If we ever decide to create an anything but orthodox podcast or something. Oh, wait, that would be backwards. No, never we mind. We better not, David <laughs> Cook. All this whole episode is going right to the FBI. I'm, I'm not even. <laughs> what would the FBI do? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I would say, what would you answer to these people that say, well, if we're speaking about natural law and things that are natural, we, we observe in nature that quite frequently the opposite is true. So, for example, you know, a pride of lion will have one male, many female partners. Um, a gorilla tribe will have one silverback gorilla who mates with whomever he pleases, et cetera, et cetera. So that's obviously, the argument would go, the more natural inclination. And why should man be any different from the other animals? I don't know if this is the best argument, but I feel like if polygamy was God's normative design, he would have created a lot more women than men. <laughs> I mean, and now, now I'll, I'll say, like, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that you can't have one woman with multiple men because a woman can only get pregnant for one man at a time. So I think that's just obviously nonsense. Like, just, like, again, if that was the intention, maybe you'd have, like, you know, multiple, like, you could have, if you could have multiple babies at the same time, then maybe you could have an argument. But as far as, like... And if you're going to say, like, polygamy with one man and multiple women, like, don't you think God would create a lot more women in that case? I, I think it's pretty clear God created men and women in roughly equal, like, like numbers. And also, like, you know, marriage is also – this is one difference between humans and animals. Marriage is for love between two human beings that are made in the image of God. So, you know, I, I think polygamy would be unfitting for that. Like, you know, if you have a man and several women – then, not to sound modernist about it, but, like, at a certain level, then at that point, the woman is not just in terms of, like, role, but in terms of, like, substance. Like, it's like the woman is inferior to the man, so to speak. Is maybe the term sinful not the correct one to use in this instance when trying to derive meaning from the natural law? Would it be more apt to maybe phrase it in such a way as can we see that fornication is is disordered or not the intent yeah that seems to make more sense because the terminology of sinful implies a particular lawgiver although even then i think that you know we can know from natural law that there is a god vatican one teaches that but yeah at the very least i think you can see that it would be disordered Right. Okay. And then the second part of the question, just to reiterate, is what are the limits to what we can know from natural revelation alone or natural law alone? I mean, I think we can know that there is a God and that he deserves to be worshipped, although I don't think we can really know how to worship him from natural law. Um, so you see all these different pagan tribes offering animal sacrifices and things like that, and ultimately the sacrifice God wants is the sacrifice of his son. But the Catholic religion teaches us that. You don't know that if you are, you know, a, a like natural law alone sola natura like deist or something and i don't know if that's good latin but <laughs> it doesn't natural law doesn't teach us how to save our souls although saint Tom, and normatively speaking you can't be saved without the sacraments of the church and saint thomas aquinas says that if a man is genuinely ignorant but he follows the precepts of the natural law god will find a way to give him the faith but um you know, but natural law can tell us, you know, that there is a God that needs to be worshipped that gave us the creation. And it can tell us more or less how we're supposed to interact with other men. You know, we know in our consciences it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to commit adultery. These are things that are consistently understood in all cultures and all times and all places. 
That's true. It's, not it's everyone a... does them. Not because everyone does them, to be clear, but whenever they don't do them, there's always some kind of special pleading, right? Like, it's like, well, the king can steal your wife, but, like, you can't steal the king's wife, right? Like, right. You know, there's a kind of special pleading behind, like, any kinds of exceptions that are made. But, like, we do, but, like, we know, you know, variations of the golden rule existed before Christ. Now, they were usually framed as a negative. Like, I think, I forget if it's Buddha or if it's somebody else who said, like, you know, what is hateful to yourself, don't do to others. And I, and I think the positive version of it is so much richer because it goes so much deeper than just, like, don't do bad things. It's, like, do good things for your neighbor. But but my point is, like, you know, don't hit people. Don't take their stuff. Like, these are things that you don't need a Bible to know. Like, everyone everyone can look to their own conscience and to the world and can say, like, you know, I shouldn't hit my neighbor. I shouldn't take his stuff. I shouldn't take his wife. You know, like, these kinds of things. I, I shouldn't be going around lying to people. Like, you know, I want people to tell me the truth. I'm going to tell them the truth, you know. These kinds of, like, things. And I think there's two errors here. Like, on the one hand, there's the error of the naturalist who says, that's enough. Like, that's all we were created for. There's no supernatural purpose to which we were created. And then on the other side, there are some of these more clowny Protestants who will say things like, well, we're all equally bad. All sin is equal. So, like, you know, you're either, like, you either have the imputed righteousness of Christ or else you're Hitler. Right. Like, you know, so I, and I think that's kind of where there's a balance. Do you want me to quote Vatican I on faith and reason? Why not? Sure. All right. I have a couple of quotes. Quote, even though faith is above reason, there can never be any real disagreement between faith and reason, since it is the same God who reveals the mysteries and infuses faith and who has endowed the human mind with the light of reason. Not only can faith and reason never be at odds with one another, but they mutually support each other for, on the one hand, right reason, established the foundations of the faith, illuminated by its developed. On the other hand, delivers reason from errors and protects it and furnishes it with knowledge of many kinds. And I have a couple more quotes, a couple of the anathemas from Vatican I. Quote, if anyone says the one true God, our Lord and creator, cannot be known with certainty from the things that have been made by the light of natural light of human reason, let him be anathema. And then on the flip side, if anyone says that the ascent to Christian faith is not free, but is necessarily produced by arguments of human reason, or that the grace of God is necessary only for living faith, which works by charity, let him be anathema. I really love this because I know you know this. I'm very much an academic. Um, and whenever I was Protestant, it was always kind of just to varying degrees. It was always kind of like, you know, just believe this, just accept it. Like the Bible says, if there's no further explanation, I really love this from Vatican one, because it really does say like our faith is reasonable and it has to conform to reason, but yet there's still supernatural grace that needs to be received to accept it. So like, it's not Protestant, but it's also not Pelagian. Um, you know, the Pelagians would say that just by natural, like by, 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 um, basically by our own efforts, we can be lifted up to God. I'm being the furthest thing from an academic. I love that too. I think you, I think you explained it perfectly. And, and I think that, yeah, that gives you the whole sense of how we can get to faith, reason, and morality all kind of coexisting and working together just from a natural law perspective, really. Absolutely. Okay, so should we move on to the third and final question? This is a bit of a long question. Yep. Okay, um, this is from Matt, and Matt says, Jesus says, quote, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. That's close quote. One, those who partake of Jesus' flesh and end up apostatizing, 
when Jesus says they will live forever, I don't like that. And two, <laughs> even if he wasn't teaching perseverance of the saints, what do you do with this text when Jesus says that everyone who eats his flesh and drinks his blood, at least at that moment, abides in him, when there are clearly unbelievers who partake of the Eucharist? I don't like that either. But I'll let you, I'll let you answer these well, my answer to this is, first of all, there are a lot of issues. John chapter 6 is an interesting passage because a lot of time Calvinists will bring it up to defend like their views of predestination and perseverance of the saints, and Catholics will bring it up to justify their views of the Eucharist. So it is kind of interesting how when you go at something with different set of eyes, you end up coming to different conclusions. And I, I will say there are a lot of issues to discuss in John chapter 6. I suspect that we'll discuss it more in the future, but for the moment— I'm going to particularly zero in on these two questions, so I'm leaving I'm leaving some parts of the whole chapter undressed. But just for these things, I guess what I would say is like, so number one, I'll play by his rules, right? You know, Protestants say we interpret scripture with scripture. Um, that's not necessarily my view of hermeneutics, but I'll play by those rules. So I don't think Jesus is intending to teach on perseverance of the saints here, like one way or the other. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I don't think he has in mind that somebody would read this or hear this and come to the conclusion of, oh, if I take the Eucharist one time, I can never fall away. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's more getting at something analogical. Um, there is a big, like, eating is very important in Scripture. Um, Adam and Eve ate a fruit, and it led to the damnation of mankind, right? So Jesus gives us the true bread of life, and we eat it for our salvation. People who ate the manna in the wilderness died physically. But Jesus gives us the bread of life that we will never that we will never die spiritually. Now, I don't think that means that just like you eat it one time and that's the end of discussion, right? There are other texts in the Bible, like going with the whole like, you know, scripture interprets scripture thing. There are passages like Romans 11 talks about if, if we get arrogant, we'll be cut off from the vine. You've right. got Hebrews 10, 26 saying if we sin deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any forgiveness for our sins. First Corinthians eleven twenty nine, where Paul says, "For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord." Oh right, I was going to get to that when I answered the second part of the question. Oh okay. Um, I blanked on it because I was I kind of had it at a later point in my notes, but um, yeah. So I I will address that in a second. So but I, right now I'm just addressing the perseverance question, and then I'll address the second part of the question. Can you so, explain for the people at home? Explain to the people at home, David, what is perseverance of the saints it is a view held to by calvinists and some others that says once you are quote saved you can never lose your salvation like you know once you have like once you're in right relationship with christ nothing you could ever do could take that away from you and there are two different variations of it there's one variation that's usually called eternal security there's this one king james only guy i think his name was lawrence vance who actually said, if you, quote, accept Jesus into your heart and then you become an atheist later on, like, you're still saved. So that's the more ridiculous version. That's the more, like, really clowny version. And then, and I'm not even going to really address that. I just think it's so ridiculous. I don't really think I need to argue against that. Um, and then there's the more, like, sophisticated version, which is usually referred to as perseverance of the saints, which is this view that I think Matt would hold to, which basically says, you know, if you're truly saved, you won't fall away. But again, I think there are multiple scriptures that suggest that true believers can fall away. And they'll use special pleading. Like they'll say things like, well, you're in the covenant, but you're not really saved. But that's refuted by Jeremiah 31 because of the new covenant. Everybody who is in the covenant knows the Lord. 
So, uh, I mean, again, that's kind of like, you know, so it's like, basically it's like, well, let me take this passage so hyper literally when that's not what Jesus is really getting at, that I'm going to contradict what Jesus said about the new covenant, or I'm going to contradict what Paul said about falling away. So that's honestly my answer to part one. And I mean, again, it, at a certain point, it comes down to how you interpret certain texts. But again, I think that's why you needed a teaching authority, because I don't think scripture was written to be completely clear for everybody to just read for themselves and interpret. But as far as this text goes, I think Jesus had a main point here, and Matt's kind of reading more into it than the main point. So with the second part, again, I think Matt's being really overly literalistic. Like he's saying, um, even if he wasn't teaching perseverance of the saints, what do you do with this text when Jesus says that everyone who eats his flesh and drinks his blood, at least at that moment, abides in him when there are clearly unbelievers who partake of the Eucharist? Um, so because he who eats this bread will live forever, there's nothing that can be added to that. Like, that's kind of weird. Like, you know, Jesus is saying he who eats this bread will live forever to contrast it with the bread, the manna, which is a type and a foreshadowing of what Jesus was ultimately going to give us. But again, like, like, so think about this, like, right. Everything in the old Testament was finite. Jesus is infinite. So like you had to kill a Passover lamb every year, right? Those sacrifices you had to keep, keep offering, like you had to keep killing new animals and every year. And that was never like ending. But when Jesus died once, that was it. And I know Protestants will say, well, we have the sacrifice of the mass, but we're not killing Jesus every time, right? Like, you know, we're offering the one sacrifice. We're bringing the one sacrifice into our time so that we can worship God the Father in our time. But we're not killing Jesus every Sunday. That's ridiculous. And in the same way, like, you know, when you, you had to eat a new Passover lamb every year and you had to, and God had to give new manna every day, but like Jesus, we eat the body and blood of Christ from that one sacrifice forever. So, and and when you partake of that worthily in a state of grace and you continue to do that, you will live forever. But I think, again, I think Matt just kind of has this dichotomy where either you take it hyper literally or you don't take it literally at all. And I think there's a balance here. Um I, I think that like you, I mean, even if we play by the Protestants rules, right? Scripture interprets scripture. So one scripture should be able to qualify another scripture, right? You think that's fair? Sure. So in first Corinthians chapter 11, like you kind of got at before, Paul talks about eating unworthily. And if you eat unworthily, you don't receive the graces, but you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So I don't think Jesus was intending to teach like Jesus was presenting a radical idea, right? He's running the idea that we have to eat his flesh and eating his flesh leads us to living forever. I don't think Jesus meant to teach so hyper literally that like, you know, you could have a Satanist partake of the body and blood of Christ, but he will just automatically live forever because, you know, he happened to perform the external ritual. And I think this almost comes from a straw man of Catholic theology, right? Like you can just like, you can like, you know, the, um, We've been accused of believing in ex opere operato sacraments, which it depends on how you define that. But, like, we don't believe that sacraments will give you grace apart from any interior disposition, right? If I go and take the Eucharist while I have mortal sin on my soul, that's judgment, not grace. As you said, you know, the things of the Old Testament, the prefigurations, they're all possessed of a superannuation, while as obviously the Eucharist is everlasting and brings everlasting life. But you can't just go around fully invested in the life of turpitude and expect that you're going to receive those graces from partaking of the Eucharist on a surface level. And I think one other thing I want to say about this, so the way the question's kind of framed, 
is he want to take he wants to take the whoever part ultra literally and ignore the eat and drink his body and blood part. But I don't think the church ever did that, right? St. Ignatius of Antioch in the Epistle of Smyrnaeans, which, by the way, St. Ignatius was the disciple of the guy who wrote John 6, so I think he's pretty important. But he certainly took the Eucharist, literally. He said the Gnostics don't eat of the Eucharist because they don't believe it's the body and blood of Christ. But yet, there's not really any record. And I'm going to cite, again, Lutheran patristic scholar Jordan Cooper here says that nobody really held to this idea that, like, once you were regenerated, you could never fall away. Until the Reformation. Right? Like, I've never seen any proof that anyone did. Now, there are some people who hold held to high views of predestination, sure. And we could talk about that. But, I mean, you know, but nobody held that, like, you know, you just, like, you get saved and you can never fall away. Like, that's a very new idea that didn't start until, like, Zwingli or Calvin. These kind of things, for me anyway, I don't see how it could be any different. That, that they incline people towards a sort of spiritual and mental torpor, right? Because if you're if you're saved and you're saved and that's it, well, what's the reasoning behind exerting yourself to, you know, as St. Paul says, to to fight the fight and run the race? Right. And on the same time, if you are mired in sin, it's like, well, maybe I was never chosen, or like, well, maybe I'm just still saved, rather than, yeah, you screwed up, go to confession. <laughs> Right, it's a very dangerous proposition. It, it is a lot very of people. So. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely one of the more disturbing and and damaging of the Protestant. Uh, I've said this several times, but like, go to confession, like everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah, convert to Catholicism and go to confession. There you go. Exactly. John twenty twenty three. Jesus said, "Whoever sins, you forgive will be forgiven. Whoever sins, you don't forgive will not be forgiven." Them. So clearly. Even if you partake of the bread of life, if you commit certain kinds of sins, you have to go to one of Christ's representatives on earth and ask them for forgiveness for your sins. Right. Protestants don't like that either, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> Just a small aside for, for non-Catholics, um, when you do become Catholic, and of course we hope you will, if you do attend Mass and you find yourself in having committed venial sins, the Mass does account for the forgiveness of venial sins. You may still partake of the Eucharist if you were not able to get to confession while having committed venial sins. Now, mortal sins, on the other hand, they're not accounted for. The forgiveness of them requires sacramental confession before you partake of the Eucharist. Should we explain the difference between venial and mortal sins since we brought this up? Yeah, we can. Why not? I mean, basically, and I mean, there you'd have to look, it would be hard to give an exhaustive list, but number one, mortal sins lead to death of the soul, all venial sins do not. And I will also say the most common mortal sins that a lot of people would commit on a daily basis would be things, I mean, although if you're committing on a daily basis, you should stop. But, um, but you know, I mean, you should, you should never commit a sin. Like, obviously you shouldn't, but the most common ones are sins of impurity, sins of the flesh. Um, Our Lady of Fatima said more souls are damned by for sins of the flesh than for any other reason. And, you know, I mean, it seems like, like I'm sure priests get a lot more confessions of, like, masturbation or pornography versus, like, you know, I just went into a school and I asked 10 people. <laughs> David, I mean, Halloween's coming up, but good grief. <laughs> Man, this, I, I, you're, you are the title this Hitler wasn't so bad, aren't you? <laughs> I'm probably probably not going to but you know you never know <laughs> depends on what side of the bed you wake up on monday morning yeah it's like 
how hungry am I? You know, <laughs> is anybody giving me like a good meatball sandwich? <laughs> okay, David. So do you think that that takes care of that final question? Yeah, I think so. Unless you have anything to add to it. No, I think that's really good. Um, I know that also before we wrapped up that you have an upcoming debate that you would like to promote. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the exact the final date is still to be determined, but it's probably going to be streamed over Zoom Zoom sometime in early December. Um, it is with a reformed apologist um, who isn't super well known. He's a friend of mine, but um, he's a fairly good debater. I think he has done like um, formal debate before. Um, so we're going to be having a debate on sola scriptura. I believe the proposition that we agreed upon was something like scripture is not the only infallible norm for faith and practice. And I'm going to be defending that idea, whereas he's going to be arguing against it. Um, that we're still working on the format and the final date and stuff like that, but that is going to be coming up sometime in early December. Sounds good. Um, and we will post updates with all the information for that as the date gets closer and as we have an actual date. And uh, I'm assuming also we will host it on sequelbrotus.com. And also, please send your questions about apologetics, whether from the Protestant standpoint or from the Catholic standpoint. If you're a Catholic and you want to learn how to better defend your faith, if you're a Protestant and you have questions about why Catholics believe what they believe, email any questions of that type to sequa virtus s-i-q-u-a-v-i-r-t-u-s at protonmail.com that's p-r-o-t-o-n-m-a-i-l and we will take those questions that's how this works and we will give you a as good of an answer as we possibly can and i think david cook you've done a fantastic job so far and another thing i want to say and i will be saying this at the end of every episode but if any Protestants want to have some kind of like a formal discussion or debate with me, definitely let us know that as well. I'm definitely willing to do that. Right. And as I said last time, if, if it occurs on the show, I will only act as moderator. It will not be a two on one West Side Story style uh, <laughs> gang gang beatdown of uh, now I'm showing my age. West Side Story uh, gang beatdown oh. of the Protestants. <laughs> What'd you say? I said you're old. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. All right. David Cook, is there anything else you want to get out? Before I let you go for this week's episode. Not really. I think we're good. All right. Sounds great. David Cook, this has been anything but Catholic. God bless <laughs> you all. Send in your questions. We'll see you next week.